welcome to the mysterious world of the Skylark Bell. Our story begins on the outskirts of a small town called Pocket, where Margaret Phaeton, better known as Magpie, must connect a series of unexplained events, psychic visions, and century-old folktales before the mysterious silence hanging over the abandoned farm at Meadow Lane spreads to the entire town. The Skylark Bell is a fiction podcast in serial format, with new chapters every Friday, and bonus episodes that recount real-life paranormal experiences. Find The Skylark Bell on all major platforms and at theskylarkbell.com. I'm Melissa Oliveri. Thank you for listening. Do not attempt to adjust the settings on your device. The sounds you hear are not hallucinations. You have crossed into the domain of a traveler that has a taste for telling tales about the macabre, the strange, the unusual, and the morbid. Don't be shy. Step inside and take a seat by the fire and enjoy your visit into the world that is the Nightcap Nebula. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to the Nightcap Nebula podcast, where nothing is taboo or wicked, and the topics are always eerie and intriguing. When last you left the fire, I told you tales of some incredibly strange disappearances and very perplexing vanishings, but there is some solace in that. No bodies, no crime. Well, that isn't always the case, and when a mangled corpse, bloody rag, or other evidence of foul play is found, the plot tends to thicken and get downright diabolical and scary. If disappearances creeped you out, then the unsolved homicides that this world has had will have you gripping your blanket in fear. Join me for part two, getting into the murderous side of the top 10 mystifying disappearances and malicious demises. If you go back far enough, you can dig up some of the most heinous crimes imaginable. But some of the worst date back to when American slavery of African Americans was in full swing. Violent, sadistic, cruel, and at times seeping with unspeakable evil. Unfortunately, the modern world is still rife with racism, but is mostly hidden now, shrouded in politicism and code words. Thankfully, atrocities were not buried forever thanks to brave writers like Solomon Northrup, but in his case, no good deed goes unpunished. Northrop was born July 10th, 1807, in what is now Essex County Town in the Adrianac Mountains, which is now Minerva, New York. His father, a former slave, moved the family to neighboring Washington County, eventually settling in the village of Fort Edward on the Hudson River 40 miles north of Albany. 
though he claimed to have been born in July of 1808 in his book. A later deposition in which he specified his birth date and age indicates that he was likely born a year earlier. His father, Mintus, had been born into slavery, but was freed following the death of his master, Captain Henry Northrup, whose will contained the stipulation that his slaves be manumitted. Mintus eventually acquired his own farm and enough land to fulfill the property ownership requirement that African Americans faced in order to vote, and, since his father was deemed free, Solomon by default was born a free man. Solomon received some education and worked on his family's farm as a child. He married Anne Hampton in 1828, and in 1834, he sold his farm and moved his family to Saratoga Springs, New York, where they worked odd jobs to support their three children. Northrop also established a reputation as a talented fiddler. Things seemed to be going great for Solomon until one day, in March 1841, he was recruited by two men who claimed to be circus performers and offered him money to join their act as a fiddler, traveling south from New York. Upon their arrival in Washington, D.C. in early April, Northrop was drugged, lost consciousness, and awoke to find himself in shackles in an underground cell. He was conveyed to Richmond, Virginia, and then delivered by ship to New Orleans, where in June, he was sold at a slave market under the name Platt Hamilton. He spent the ensuing 12 years in slavery in the Bayou Bayef Plantation region of central Louisiana's Red River Valley. Northrop was passed around from slave owner to slave owner, first being owned by William Prince Ford, whom he praised for his kindness. Due to financial troubles, he was sold to the brutal John M. Tybutt in 1842, with Ford retaining 40% ownership of him as the sale was for the repayment of a debt not judged to be worth as much as Northrop. Being Tybutt's only slave, Solomon was treated cruelly, but every time Tybutt attempted to whip him, Northrop resisted and prevailed in every struggle, infuriating Tybutt, who sought help from neighboring overseers in attempting to lynch him, who was rescued by Ford's overseer, Anderson Chafin. Northrop finally fled to the protection of Ford, who then demanded that Tybutt sell or lease him. In April 1843, Northrop was sold by Ford and Tybutt to Edwin Epps, under whose ownership he remained for the next decade. Epps used Northrop both as an artisan slave and as a field hand, occasionally leasing him out to sugar planters and processors, but most of the time, he was often a driver in charge of other slaves. Epps, who was proud of his expertise with a lash, had a sadistic streak and was quite cruel to his slaves. Northrop contrived to escape several times during that period, but was unsuccessful. It was not until an abolitionist carpenter from Canada named Samuel Bass visited Epps Farm in June 1852 that Northrop was able to arrange to have letters delivered to friends in New York to alert them of his situation and set in motion his rescue. One letter was forwarded to Anne Northrop, who enlisted the help of Henry B. Northrop, a lifelong friend of Solomon and the grandnephew of the person who had manumitted Mintus. Henry mobilized widespread support for Solomon among the leading citizens of Sandy Hill, which is now Hudson Falls and Fort Edward, New York, and under 1840 statute designed to rescue New York citizens sold in slavery. In November 1852, Governor Washington Hunt made him an agent of the state of New York to find Solomon. Armed with this array of documentation, along with letters from a senator and a Supreme Court justice, Henry traveled to Louisiana and hired local counsel. With the help of Bass, they were able to locate Solomon, and his freedom was legally obtained on January 4th, 1853. That same year, many things happened from reuniting with his family and the arrest of his abductor to him penning his memoir with David Wilson. His book sold very well with the proceeds giving him enough to purchase property in upstate New York. The next few years saw him go on speaking tours and made a name for himself, gaining notoriety among many circles. Some that didn't look kindly on his presence, however. After his speeches across the country, he got involved in the Underground Railroad, spending several years in New England helping escaped slaves find freedom in the Northeast and Canada. 
Around 1863, the height of the Civil War, he dropped out of sight and was never heard from again. His last public appearance was in Streetsville, Ontario, Canada in August 1857. He was not accounted for in the U.S. Census of 1860 and almost certainly predeceased Anne, who died in 1876. The mystery surrounding Solomon's disappearance is controversial and historians have tons of theories. One scenario has him being captured and killed while serving as a spy for the Union Army. The man who helped rescue him said he believed Northrop had taken to drink and was kidnapped yet again. Northrop could have also died in a place where no one knew him or cared to properly bury an African American at the time when a war over slavery was tearing the nation apart. He may have just wandered around from place to place and died somewhere nobody knew who he was, and he was buried in a potter's field, said David Fisk, co-author of the 2013 Northrop book along with Union College professor Clifford Brown. There really is no reliable paper trail for his demise. Fisk said Northrop's descendants also couldn't provide any documents or hard facts, so he was followed numerous threads while trying to track down where Northrop may have been buried. He checked cemeteries and communities outside Saratoga and other upstate communities where Northrop's wife and their children later lived, but came up empty. No death records have ever been found for him. Fisk, a former state librarian, points out that death records weren't kept in a systematic form in New York until the 1880s. For Seligman, a museum curator at Skidmore College, host of July's annual Solomon Northrop Day, the mystery surrounding Northrop's demise and resting place is part of the allure of being a historian. Many armchair detectives have the notion that he was a victim of the earliest incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan based on his travels with the Underground Railroad, which makes sense since they were known to operate in secret, but a lot of their crimes were meant to send a message, like displaying bodies hanging from trees or other gruesome acts. There is a possibility that he was burned after being killed, which would make his final resting place nearly impossible to uncover, especially now. Whatever the case, chances are the reason for Solomon Northrop's death will never be found, and evidence of this has been scattered into the winds of history. If there is a lesson here, it is this. Happiness is a hard-fought ordeal that comes with suffering, misery, and sacrifice. This man endured all three, earning his liberation and peace of mind. Let us all remember him for his endeavors and accomplishments, not for his demise. Those of you that dabble in cold cases know how annoying it can be since leads often go nowhere, witness accounts become muddled, and evidence that would have been valuable early on is either lost, ends up being circumstantial, or useless due to the decay of time. Jimmy Hoffa is one of the world's most notorious cold cases. No body, no reliable witnesses, no evidence, and absolutely nothing to go on as the years roll by. What about when a body is discovered, but there is no rhyme or reason for the kill? Enter Herman Ehrenberg. Much of Herman's background has been the subject of a lot of speculation by journalists and misinformation and publications about him is still debated today, but from what has been said that is true is that he was born Herman Volrath Ehrenberg in 1816 in student Prussia and his baptism was recorded three days later by a local Lutheran church. His parents were Johann and Sophie and he had two other siblings, also boys named Emil and Frederick. Herman was the youngest. In 1834, at the tender age of 18, having never set foot outside of his town, he traveled to the U.S. settling in New York for a year, working odd jobs until moving to New Orleans in 1835. Soon after his arrival, 
News was spreading about the Texas Revolution forming militia groups, rebelling against the Mexican government. Eager to join the cause, he enlisted with the New Orleans Greys, also claiming to be the third to enlist and, as it turns out, the youngest. The Greys consisted of two companies, with his company taking a steamboat up the river to Nachitochas, Louisiana, into Mexican-occupied Texas. Even though this was not sanctioned by President Jackson, nor was it supported by the U.S. government, none of the militia members met any resistance. Herman participated in many battles, capturing commanders and being one of only a few survivors of the Goliad Massacre. Being held prisoner, General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana had little use for the Texans rising up and had a no-quarter rule for captured soldiers. Despite the commander receiving orders to treat Herman's company with respect, Santa Ana overrode this and ordered them all to be executed. Herman's company was marched toward the San Antonio River, where each man kneeled and was fired upon with the first volley of bullets missing Herman. In the confusion, he fell to the ground and crawled towards the river, but not before a soldier clipped him with a sword slash. According to Ehrenberg, after he reached the safety of the opposite bank, he looked back at the place where my friends lay bleeding to death. The enemy was still shooting and yelling, and it was with a sorrowful heart that I listened to these shouts of triumph, which in my fancy were mingled with the groans of pain of my dying friends. Soon after, he wandered the countryside starving and almost gave up hope until he came across a Mexican commander who he traveled with under the guise that he was a Prussian immigrant and not a Texan soldier. Herman and another man managed to escape to the nearby Texan-occupied town of Matagorda within a few weeks. Eventually, Santa Ana surrendered and Herman was discharged from the Texan army in June 2nd, 1836. After the revolution ended, Herman moved back to Germany and attended Freiburg University to study mining, but ended up teaching English at the University of Hale, even publishing a memoir of his time as a Texian soldier entitled Texas Unsin Revolution, the English translation being Texas and its Revolution. Herman returned to the United States in 1844, journeying to St. Louis, Missouri, to join a group traveling to Oregon Territory. In May 1845, he sailed from Oregon to Hawaii on the Brig Chinimus, and within several months, the Hawaiian government hired him to survey the streets of Honolulu. For the next two years, Ehrenberg likely operated a schooner named Louise, which brought goods from La Paz, Baja, California Sur, to Hawaii, with his home most likely being in La Paz. Some historians maintain that in 1846 and 1847, Ehrenberg sailed to Tahiti and several other Polynesian islands, and others report that in 1846, Ehrenberg joined the 1st Regiment of New York Volunteers in California to fight in the Mexican-American War. Most evidence disputes that Ehrenberg joined the army, however, and according to the memoirs of one of the soldiers in the unit that is claimed that Ehrenberg belonged to, he was only a civilian and volunteer aide to Captain Seymour Steele of that regiment. He did play a vital part that is not disputed when, in March 1848, Ehrenberg and 33 other men rescued American prisoners that were held south of La Paz. During the last years of his life, Herman traveled to Arizona being contracted by Charles Poston, also known as the Father of Arizona, to travel to the new area and see what mining opportunities existed in the region. After a brief stint of being shipwrecked and captured by local Mexican troops being mistaken for upstarts, the group reached Tubac, Arizona and soon gathered gold, silver, and copper samples most likely acquired from other miners. Ehrenberg and Poston took the samples overland to San Francisco to gain investors for a mining consortium and, on the way, the men stopped near Fort Yuma where Ehrenberg surveyed a town site which he called Colorado City, eventually becoming the town of Yuma, with Ehrenberg seeing no profit from it. 
Some of his last notable ventures were partnering with Charles Poston to form the Sonoro Exploring and Mining Company in 1856, serving as an Indian agent for the Mojave people of the Colorado River Indian Reservation from 1863 to 1866, and contributing to multiple prospecting publications such as Mining Magazine, Arizona Weekly, and Journal of Geology. Things were definitely looking up for this man, but unfortunately, the clouds darkened and blacked out the sun on his life. In October 1866, Ehrenberg was traveling along the road from Yuma to San Bernardino. He arrived at the station at Dos Palmas on October 9th, and having taken care of a few things, bedded down for the night on a pallet near the station building. The next morning, he was discovered on the same pallet lifeless. He had been shot straight through the heart, and it died almost instantly. There was no one around, and no one heard anything. It was as if a phantom had killed him, leaving no trace. So the $64,000 question is, who killed Herman Ehrenberg? Well, it turns out there may have been someone there the night of his death. Vincent Ryan of the Arizona Gazette wrote an account a few days after the murder. In it, he said that W.H. Smith, the station master at Dos Palmas, was awakened by a gunshot about midnight. He went outside to find Ehrenberg in grave condition. He died a little while later with some items missing from the small store that suggests that it was a robbery gone wrong with Herman being at the wrong place at the wrong time. According to some sources, he was carrying $3,500 in gold coin in order to purchase a mine which strengthens his theory, but it only gets crazier. According to Ryan, local Indians had robbed Ehrenberg and the station, shot Ehrenberg when he got up to investigate, and would be easily captured in the near future. Ryan's version lacked any evidence, but was generally accepted at the time. In fact, just a few months later, another account indicates that the murderer was killed at Agua Caliente, today's Palm Springs, by Indians who had chased him from San Bernardino. Plausible, sure, but then this theory gets even crazier. Charles Poston posited in 1880 that the murderer was, in fact, the station keeper who told the authorities that he had heard the commotion the night before. His reasoning seems to be that Smith was there and had ample opportunity. While that may be true, it certainly does not confirm Smith's role in the murder. Still, a third account came nearly 80 years after the murder. In it, Bill McCoy, for whom the McCoy Mountains are named, claimed that he was with Ehrenberg and two other travelers from La Paz to San Bernardino. When they stopped for the night at Mule Springs, about 20 miles from the Colorado River, one of the men propositioned an Indian woman living nearby. When her male friend heard about it, he challenged the man and the two fought, with the Indian man receiving the worst of the altercation. He in turn followed the others on their trek toward Dos Palmas and shot Ehrenberg after mistakenly thinking that he was the one who had bothered the woman. As vivid and imaginative as all of these so-called accounts are, there is flimsy evidence to connect the dots and come to anything conclusive, and his death, as of today, remains a most likely permanent cold case. White man's burden comes to mind in telling this tale, but it sounds mildly racist in lieu of the Native American ties. Then again, if Herman's obituary in the Daily Alta is to believe that Indian savages took his life, I guess it would be red man's burden if there was such a thing. Renaissance men are few and far between these days. Simply put, that term is a bit dated, but it means a person that has many talents and attributes. A jack of all trades, if you will, but something more. Of all the people on this list, Ambrose Pierce certainly fits this particular character bill, and his story is quite tragic. 
Beers was born on June 24, 1842, in a log cabin at Horse Cave Creek in Meigs County, Ohio, to Marcus Aurelius Beers and Laura Sherwood Beers. He was of English ancestry, with all of his ancestors coming to North America between 1620 and 1640 as part of the Great Puritan Migration. He often amusingly wrote critically of both Puritan values and people who made a fuss about genealogy. He was the tenth of thirteen children, all of whom were given names by their father beginning with the letter A, in order of birth. The Bierce siblings were Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeida, Andrew, Albert, Ambrose, Arthur, Adelia, and Aurelia. Most of his childhood was spent reading books and poetry because he came from a poor upbringing, but his parents encouraged him to explore the arts and take an interest in literature. At the age of 15, he ventured out on his own and went to work as a printer's devil at an abolitionist newspaper called the Northern Indianan when he stayed until briefly attending the Kentucky Military Institute until it burned down. At the onset of the Civil War, Beer enlisted into the Army joined the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry, participating in many notable battles, including the Battle of Philippi, Battle of Rich Mountain, which he received newspaper attention for his brave heroics, and the Battle of Shiloh, which became subject for a later memoir that described the horrors he witnessed called What I Saw of Shiloh. There are way too many battles to list, but this man saw more combat than most modern soldiers. He ended on a positive note retiring as a brevet major after arriving in San Francisco with his commanding officer, General Hazen. He spent the next few years being a contributor or editor, depending on the needs of whichever publication he worked for. His works reporting for the San Francisco New Letter were included in the Library of America Anthology of True Crime. In 1872, he went to England and wrote for Fun Magazine, eventually compiling a book of his articles called The Fiend's Delight, under the pseudonym Don Grill. In 1879, he went back to San Francisco and for the next year, traveled to the Dakota Territory to try his hand at managing a mining company. Unfortunately, this venture fell through, forcing him to return to San Francisco to continue his journalism. The next four years saw him become one of the most prolific writers in the country, even being a top contributor to William Randolph Hearst's paper, The San Francisco Examiner. Over time, his career had a sardonic approach to life, being a bitter, sometimes brash, literary agent, and he never really garnered the same notoriety as his colleagues, despite his library of works, mostly because his journalism overshadowed his books. That isn't to say that he didn't inspire others. The show The Twilight Zone had an episode called The Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge that is based loosely off of his near-execution experience winning multiple awards, and even Kurt Vonnegut considered Bierce to be one of the most influential writers of the past 200 years. He would have been known for his writings, but history, as it turns out, had other plans. By late 1913, Bierce was divorced and free to pursue a wandering writer's life. So at the age of 71, he embarked on a trip to visit famous battle sites of the Civil War. After this journey, his whereabouts and fate become a little murky and lead to a lot of theories as to what happened to him. The best working one states that he crossed into Mexico from Texas on horseback. Mexico was in the midst of their own civil war and the country was a dangerous one to be in. Still, the exact reason for his trip there is unknown. Clearly, he was aware of the danger in the war-torn country. At the time, he wrote a very foreboding note to a relative that reads as follows. Goodbye. If you hear of my being stood up against the Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think that this is a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. I shall not be here long enough to hear from you, and I don't know where I shall be next. 
Despite an intense investigation brought on by his daughter, nothing turned up, and this would be the last anyone would hear from Beers, with no trace of him ever being found. Other more outlandish theories surfaced over time, some being more bizarre than others, but some scholars and historians believe that factions of the armies in Mexico indeed killed Beers, while others believe that he became immensely depressed and killed himself, using his alleged presence in Mexico as a cover. Another odd theory is Beers sustained serious wounds at the Battle of Unaga, and that he eventually succumbed to his wounds. It goes that he made it to the border and into the states, but he died without identification or any papers in Camp Marfa. The story gets implausible as there are conflicting witness statements, since some say he actually died in battle and not soon after, and his body was burned along with the other casualties making it impossible to confirm his fate. Still, others say he was riding a mule train with Federales when Pancho Villa's men overran the train and killed him. Two other theories that seemed like a Hollywood producer came up with them is that Beers and cohorts stole a Mayan artifact, the Skull of Doom, but died in the attempt to return to the USA with their treasure. Based on his age, being in his early 70s at the time, it's somewhat hard picturing Beers pulling this off. The other far-fetched theory details an explorer who came across native people who worshipped as a god, an old man wrapped in jaguar skins, suggesting that Beers became their deity. If you dig into other theories, I'm sure you'll come across alien abduction or a freak wormhole. At this point, the crazier, the more entertaining, which is ironic, since Beers would probably approve of it all, giving him material to write his next book. The fact is, however, he will most likely never be found, and if he was killed by a renegade outlaw or met his maker at the end of a bullet, we'll never know. What a truly fascinating life to write, serve your country and inspire generations yet still not have the same respectable notoriety as other literary figures and war heroes. I guess, like artists, you aren't truly appreciated until after you die or, in this case, become one with the unseen void. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, they say, but there is often a lot of bumps in the road, so bad that they tend to bust up the wagon wheels and spook the beast leaving the couple stranded or forced to walk down lover's lane that will no doubt end in squabbling, fighting, and yes, even murder. Modern eloping is not much different from those over a hundred years ago, save for prestige and more money reasons than anything. But people like William Herbert Wallace and Julia Wallace had nothing but affection for one another, and that makes this story all the much more depressing. William Herbert Wallace was born in Millham, Cumberland in 1878 and had a younger brother and sister. He left school at 14 and began training as a draper's assistant in Barrow-in-Furness, Lancashire. He finished his apprenticeship a year later, obtaining a position in Manchester with Mers Whiteway Laidlaw and Company, which were outfitters to the British Armed Forces and the Colonial Indian and Diplomatic Services. In 1903, after five years' service, Wallace obtained a transfer to the company's branch in Calcutta, India, where he remained for two years. Years. On the suggestion of his brother, Joseph, who lived in Shanghai, in 1905 Wallace sought another transfer to Whiteway Laidlaw's branch in that city. A recurrent kidney complaint resulted in Wallace resigning his position and returning to England in 1907, where his left kidney was removed at Guy's Hospital. Not much is known of his life after this time until he obtained a position working for the Liberal Party in Harrogate, rising to the post of election agent in 1911. It was around this time that he met Julia Dennis and were soon married in March 1914. 
all early sources suggested that Julia was approximately the same age as Wallace, but in 2001, her original birth certificate revealed that she was actually 17 years older than he was. Julia's father was a ruined alcoholic farmer from near Northerlton, who had died in 1875, leaving her an orphan at the age of 13. In later life, Julia exaggerated her antecedents, claiming her father had been a veterinary surgeon and that her mother was a French noblewoman. At the outbreak of the First World War, the position of liberal election agent in Harrogate was discontinued, owing to the suspension of elections and a parliamentary truce, and Wallace once again found himself looking for a job. Through the help of his father, he obtained a position as collections agent with the Prudential Assurance Company in Liverpool. The Wallaces moved there in 1915, settling in the district of Anfield. During the 1920s, Wallace worked on the side as a collections agent, working exclusively in the neighboring Clubmore district by lecturing part-time in chemistry at Liverpool Technical College. His hobbies included chemistry, botany, and chess, and in 1928, he learned to play the violin to enable him to accompany Julia, who was an accomplished pianist, in musical evenings at their home in Enfield at 29 Wolverton Street. Aside from a few snags and little white lies and garden-variety crazy matrimony, things seemed pretty normal until the world flipped upside down for both. On the evening of January 19, 1931, Wallace went to the Central Chess Club in the basement of 24 North John Street, Liverpool, England. The club captain, Samuel Beattie, gave him a telephone message from a call received shortly beforehand from a mysterious man identifying himself as R.M. Qualtroff and wished Wallace to visit him on insurance business at 7.30pm the following evening at 25 Menlove Gardens East, Liverpool. When Wallace arrived at the presumed location, no such address existed, although there were streets named Menlove Gardens, north, south, and west, oddly enough. After checking around briefly, he gave up looking and returned to his home around 8.45pm. When he opened the door, he was greeted with a grisly sight. His wife, Julia, lay on the parlor floor, bludgeoned to death. Julia's death was brutal and violent, described as a frenzied attack of terrific force. She had been beaten around the head with an iron bar, a weapon which has never been found. Under her body was a raincoat later established to belong to William Wallace. The house was in disarray, and four pounds had been stolen from Wallace's collection box. It became a media circus, and the public's imagination began running wild with more speculation, theories, and conspiracies than you can shake a stick at. The first has to be the mysterious call Wallace received at the club. Was this a call to lure William Wallace away from his home to allow for the uninterrupted murder of his wife, or is it William Wallace himself making a bogus call to give himself an alibi? A few authors that have written extensively on this cold case have suggested that there may be more to their marriage than meets the eye, such as hidden animosity Wallace had towards Julia. His neighbors claim that they never heard any commotion from the couple and that Julia was a doting wife. On the day of the murder, no witnesses saw Wallace leave or, if he committed the murder, returned home later than leave again. Two neighbors did, however, see Wallace attempt to enter the back door around 8.40pm with the gate unbolted, which it almost never was. Wallace returning home at the time his neighbors said he did does not put him in the time frame of the murder, but it doesn't exonerate him either, since he could very well have just come back to do the song and dance of being in distress, finding his wife dead. Despite this, the call remains one of the biggest subjects of debate among true crime enthusiasts, with many believing Wallace, indeed, tried to cover his tracks with a phony call. Another key piece of confusion is that at some time between 6.35pm and 6.40pm, the Wallace Milk delivery boy, Alan Close, is said to have spoken to Julia, who he said handed her back empty milk bottles and told him to hurry home. This is crucial, as Close is the only witness, other than Wallace, reported to have seen Julia alive around this time. Despite this, 
the police had no reason to hold him as a suspect as he had no visible signs of the crime on his person and was released. Experts that have followed the story have seen this as a gross error in the investigation and fully believe Close may have been involved in Julia's death with Wallace orchestrating it and Close carrying it out. After the murder, the police traced the call that was placed to the club that day to a phone box on the corner of Rochester Road and Breck Road, just 400 yards away from the Wallace's house and right next to the stop where he caught the tram to the chess club. Despite the questionable evidence, scattered witness statements, and a serious lack of forensic evidence that goes against Wallace, the police believed him to be the killer despite the fact that he was seen on the 706 tram with no blood on his clothes and was not home at the time of death. As Julia was seen by Alan Close at around 6.40pm, this means Mr. Wallace would have had less than half an hour to kill Julia, change his clothes, clean himself of any blood, walk to the tram stop, and be sighted on a tram at 7.06pm. Sure enough, after conducting tram tests, police determined the time Wallace could have left home in order to get the tram at Smithdown Lane at 7.06pm. Detectives said the time it would have taken Mr. Wallace to get to Smithdown Lane was around 17 to 20 minutes, meaning that he could have left the house as late as 6.49pm, giving him around 10 to 15 minutes to kill Julia after she spoke to the milk boy. They decided this was enough time and thought that Wallace had used the coat found under her body to shield himself from getting blood on his clothes, which in my opinion is just sloppy reasoning. Despite police examinations showing that showers and toilets had not been used that night, so Mr. Wallace could not have washed, he was arrested 13 days after the murder and accused of creating the fictitious phone call for an alibi. Wallace was charged and found guilty of murder in April 1931. He was sentenced to death by hanging and was due to be executed in May 1931, but it didn't end there, not by a long shot. On May 19, 1931, William Wallace was released after the Court of Criminal Appeal stated that the guilty verdict could not be supported by the evidence. He moved back home and was still shunned by many in the community, many believing he did kill his wife. After being released, Wallace wrote in his diaries that he thought a former colleague may be responsible for his wife's death, but he didn't drop a name. In the end, Wallace didn't remarry and died alone from kidney problems at Clatterbridge Hospital on 26th of February 1933 and is buried in Anfield Cemetery next to his wife. It has been around 92 years since this murder occurred and police are still baffled by the case and have not uncovered her killer or even come close to who they think did it. Either William Wallace got away with murder or someone else did. Several crime writers and journalists theorize that a junior employee at Prudential named Richard Gordon Perry could be responsible for Julia's murder. However, nothing has come of these theories with no detectives following up on this. It remains one of the most puzzling, frustrating, and unsettling cold cases in history and will probably stay that way. Till Death Do You Part comes with it an ominous hidden warning to all that would enter into a joining of lives that could seem just like a fairy tale at first, but can quickly turn into a dreaded hellscape where the vows taken at the altar get deadly literal. The atrocities committed in World War II are immeasurable and regarded as some of the worst in history. What happened after the war is no picnic either for many people. The Russians, for example, were ruthless to German POWs and even to their own people, especially the ones that fought for the Third Reich called Cossacks, who were almost immediately executed. 
Problem is, some innocents were caught in the crossfire, like the man in my last entry that took a page from Oscar Schindler's book and saved thousands of lives, a Swedish businessman named Raoul Wallenberg. Wallenberg was born in 1912 in Lindingo municipality near Stockholm, where his maternal grandparents, Per Johan Weisling, and his wife Sophie Weisling, had built a summer house in 1882. His paternal grandfather, Gustav Wallenberg, was a diplomat and envoy to Tokyo, Istanbul, and Sofia. His parents were Raoul Oscar Wallenberg, a Swedish naval officer, and Maria Weisling. His father died of cancer three months before he was born and his maternal grandfather died of pneumonia three months after his birth, and his mother and grandmother raised him together. After high school and his compulsory eight months in the Swedish military, Wallenberg's paternal grandfather sent him to study in Paris. He spent one year there, and then in 1931 he studied architecture at the University of Michigan in the United States. Although his family was rich, he worked at odd jobs in his free time and joined other young male students as a passenger rickshaw handler at Chicago's Century of Progress. He used his vacations to explore the United States, with hitchhiking being his preferred method of travel. About his experiences, he wrote to his grandfather saying, When you travel like a hobo, everything's different. You have to be on the alert the whole time. You're in close contact with new people every day. Hitchhiking gives you training and diplomacy intact. Wallenberg was aware of his 116th Jewish ancestry and proud of it. He came from his great-great-grandfather Michael Benedicts, who immigrated to Stockholm in 1780 and converted to Christianity. He graduated from University of Michigan in 1935. Upon his return to Sweden, he found his American degree did not qualify him to practice as an architect. Later that year, his grandfather arranged a job for him in Cape Town, South Africa, in the office of a Swedish company that sold construction material. After six months in South Africa, he took a new job at a branch office of the Holland Bank in Hoffa. He returned to Sweden in 1936, securing a job in Stockholm with the help of his father's cousin and godfather, Jacob Wallenberg, at the Central European Trading Company, an export-import company trading between Stockholm and Central Europe, owned by Kaiman Lauer, a Hungarian Jew. In 1936, Wallenberg began working for a Dutch bank in Hoffa, a city in present-day northern Israel. While living in Hoffa, he heard first-hand accounts from German-Jewish refugees about the plight of Jews under Adolf Hitler, who became the Chancellor of Germany in 1933 and whose anti-Semitic Nazi party was in control of the country. By the early 1940s, Wallenberg had taken a job with a Stockholm-based food exporting company. Its owner, a Jew, could no longer safely travel through much of Europe, which by that time was under Nazi domain. Wallenberg replaced him on such trips and became acquainted with Budapest. Then, in January of 1944, the United States established a war refugee board to set in motion efforts to rescue European Jews and other Nazi victims. The pro-Nazi Hungarian government supported Germany's plan to obliterate all European Jews and... Also in March, Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi official responsible for overseeing the extradition of Jews to death camps, was sent to Budapest by Hitler, whose mission was to supervise the liquidation of all Hungarian Jews. By the summer, the Nazis had detained approximately 400,000 Hungarian Jews and dispatched them via deportation trains to the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camps in Poland, where they were exterminated. An additional 200,000 were in Budapest, where they resided in ghettos and awaited their fate. Meanwhile, the War Refugee Board requested that Sweden, which had stayed neutral during the war, send a special envoy to Budapest to spearhead a rescue effort. Wallenberg was selected to be that envoy. He was an ideal choice as he was sympathetic to the plight of European Jews, could speak Hungarian and German, and was familiar with Budapest. 
In July 1944, Wallenberg arrived in Budapest, where he promptly opened a Swedish embassy office close to the city's major Jewish ghettos and hired 400 individuals, many of them Jews who had been granted diplomatic immunity to operate the facility. During the following months, Wallenberg's office provided protective passports to approximately 20,000 Jews. These passports allowed their bearers shelter under the domain of the Swedish crown, protecting them from deportation. Wallenberg also established dozens of safe houses that served as hideouts for thousands of Jews. He ordered that the Jewish flag be flown over their houses, thus converting them to official Swedish embassy annexes and shielding their inhabitants from the Nazis. Wallenberg employed his financial resources to buy off German officials. In order to achieve this, he had to at once befriend them and mildly threaten them with the knowledge that at war's end, they would be treated as criminals rather than just the enemy. He created cells of spies who provided him with information about the goings-on within the Budapest Police Department and the Hungarian fascist political establishment. He also personally rescued Jews from the deportation trains. As the trains were about to leave Budapest, Wallaberg appeared at the rail yard and handed out Swedish papers to all those on board whom he could physically reach. Then he argued that all those holding papers should be let off the trains, and Wallaberg accomplished all this while in great personal danger. On at least one occasion, during the fall of 1944, Eichmann tried to have him assassinated by attacking his car. However, Wallenberg was not in the vehicle at the time of the attack. Eichmann reportedly promised that other attempts would be made on Wallenberg's life. Despite such pressure, Wallenberg persisted in his efforts to thwart the Nazis. He even challenged Eichmann directly, suggesting to him during a face-to-face -face exchange that the Germans were destined to lose the war and might as well surrender. If only his story ended here on a positive note but you can guess that did not happen. The final months leading up to his capture had been a bitter struggle. Wallenberg and his 350 employees, who by the end of 1944 were part of his extensive organization, had long since outgrown the Swedish embassy and spilled into a separate annex with its own offices. Tens of thousands of Jews were living under severe circumstances, but still relatively safe in the separate international ghetto created as a safe zone by the diplomats of the neutral countries. These Jews escaped the starvation of the central ghetto, and the protective papers issued to them by the neutral nations still afforded them a certain amount of protection on the streets. But the questions persisted. Could they manage to hold out until the Red Army, the USA's allied partner to the east, arrived? And why was liberation taking so long? In December 1944, the Soviet military finally began a siege of Budapest. On January 17, 1945, Wallenberg and his driver Vilmos Langfelder began a journey to Debrecen, located 120 miles east of Budapest, where the Soviets and a provisional Hungarian government were headquartered. The exact purpose of the trip is unknown, although one possibility is that Wallenberg wanted to discuss how to protect the Jews from pro-Nazi Hungarian thugs once the Red Army left the country. However, along the way to the meeting, Wallenberg and his driver were taken into custody by Soviet forces. What happened to the two men next remains a mystery, as they were never seen or heard from again by the outside world. In 1947, Andrei Vyshinsky, the Soviet deputy foreign minister, announced that Wallenberg was not in the Soviet Union and suggested he had possibly died during the Russian effort to seize Budapest. Then, in 1957, Andrei Gromenko, the country's new deputy foreign minister, admitted that Wallenberg had been imprisoned by the Soviets. According to Gromenko, it was revealed in recently discovered paperwork that Wallenberg had succumbed to heart disease in Moscow's Lyanka prison in July 1947 and was then cremated. However, the paperwork was never handed over to the Swedish authorities, nor was any explanation given as to why Wallenberg had been incarcerated. Some experts suggested that the Soviets might have believed Wallenberg was a spy for Western nations and was taken by mistake, never really properly looked to, and left to rot. 
As the decades passed, various unconfirmed reports from released Soviet prisoners and others surfaced regarding Wallenberg's fate, with some claiming the Swedish humanitarian was still alive and in Soviet custody. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, Wallenberg's heroism and the mystery surrounding his disappearance had earned international notoriety. By the late 1970s and early 1980s, Wallenberg's heroism and the mystery surrounding his disappearance had earned international notoriety. Believing him to still be living, some humanitarian organizations and individuals, including many whose lives were spared because of his valor, spearheaded a movement to have him released by the Russians and relocated to the US. In the meantime, Wallenberg was showered with worldwide tributes. In 1981, US President Ronald Reagan signed legislation naming Wallenberg an honorary American citizen, a mark of distinction that until that time had been earned only by Winston Churchill. In 1991, Russian President Boris Yeltsin formed a commission to investigate the Wallenberg case, but no new evidence was unearthed. Four years later, a bust of Wallenberg was displayed in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol. In 1997, the U.S. Postal Service honored Wallenberg by issuing a stamp featuring his likeness. In December 2000, Russia officially admitted Soviet forces had wrongfully held Wallenberg at a Soviet prison, according to the New York Times. However, Russia's announcement did not provide any definitive details about the cause of his death, but according to the Times, it is generally accepted that Wallenberg was executed in 1947 in a Soviet prison. Due to countless conflicting reports, governmental cover-ups from a scattered country, and years of problematic evidence that seems to contradict various testimonials, there are still, unfortunately, no real answers that have satisfied his family or those that were grateful for his sacrifice. The amount of courage from some individuals goes beyond selflessness. It comes from a place deeper than that. To put yourself in jeopardy to save those that you don't even know is a type of character that should resonate across the globe. And, if it did, maybe atrocities similar to the final solution would not be repeated again. And so at last we conclude this list of unfortunates that became one with the cruelest, most unseen parts of humanity and, unfortunately, didn't survive. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed narrating. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at the Nightcap Nebula Pod. I also have merchandise up at T Public under the Nightcap Nebula Podcast. Sales on t-shirts are on a rotating basis, so be sure to check the store periodically. Link to the page will be in the description. Finally, be sure to comment, like, and share my other segments as it helps my exposure. I greatly appreciate all your ongoing support. It means the world to me. Until next time, be safe and stay curious.